you have questions about baptism, I encourage you to pick up one of those books in front of there. Those are for you to have. <laughs> Grab that. If any of you guys are worried that I'm going to wear this robe every week, don't worry. It's only going to be on special occasions. I won't do it every week. Every Sunday. Every, that's right. Every Sunday is special. That's right. I'm going to have Tim come up here and start with reading the words so everyone can make themselves available. Come on in. That'd be great. No, no. It's on order. Yeah. All right. Today's reading is from Mark, uh, chapter 2. Um, we're going to do 1 to 17. And it's on page 837 in the Black Bible. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was... Praise to you, O Christ. I thought I had my sermon notes up here. Oh, they're there. Okay, there we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are gracious and good, and we are thankful for your word that uh, it uh, can penetrate to the depths of our heart and change us. And God, I pray that uh, your word would do that this morning, uh, that it would not just... Uh, hit us in our head, but hit us in the heart. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Uh, in the late 90s, uh, there was this 
VH1 decided, uh, you know, we're not doing well on the music videos anymore, so they started these uh, behind the music things. Do you guys ever remember watching behind the music? Uh, which they took old bands and uh, they, you know, hey, what was their journey? How did they become big? All these kind of things behind the music. So anywhere from Boston to Millie Vanilli to the Blue Oyster Cult, you know, all these bands had, you know, behind the music for them. And this is, you know, in watching the behind the music things, I always found that the bands kind of had the same trajectory. Uh, we started in a garage. We were nobodies. We played these really horrible bars. And uh, then someone found us, and we made it big. And we just skyrocketed, you know. And they went off fast, you know. And they had all these, you know, band, you know, flockies come in just following them, loving them, saying, you're amazing, and they were huge. And then always what happens is the lead singer, you know, goes to rehab. I mean, it's always that, <laughs> seems like that always happens, and then, you know, the band, you know, fights and quarrels and breaks up, and you always go, where are they now? And then at the end of VH1, you see they're playing at, you know, some Wisconsin County fairgrounds in the beer tent, you know. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah, anyway, you know, Starship, you know. Oh, Starship, classic. Um, you know, there's something about crowds, you know? They come and go. Stardom, it, it comes and it goes. One day you're big, the next day you're nothing. And uh, this is kind of what we're seeing here with Jesus. We have these crowds coming, and uh, they are following him, and they want to know, who is this guy? And what we're going to try to do this morning is we're going to see, is Jesus just drawing crowds? Trying to get people, just as many people as possible, to listen to what he's saying? To drum up support that he can one day be the new king of Israel? And I don't think that's what we're going to see. And I just want to posit this to you this morning. This idea. That Jesus, in forming a band... In putting together disciples, he is after one thing and not the other. And it's this. Jesus isn't a rock star who is here to give us what we want to hear. But instead, he is a surgeon who wants to operate on us. Jesus isn't some rock star that's here to tell us what we want to hear. But instead, he's a surgeon that wants to operate on on us. Now, again, to get back to the context of this, as we're going through the book of Mark, Jesus is starting his ministry, and he is gaining popularity. And now he is back to the town where he started. Some say where his house was, where Paul's house was. And in fact, we might even be in the house of Jesus where this story is taking place. And we see that people are following him. From all over. He can't escape, even in his own home, even in Paul's own home. People are coming out of the woodworks to see who Jesus is. And we are going to see this morning five groups. And the five groups are this one, the crowd, two, the friends, thirdly, the paralytic, the Pharisees and the scribes, and lastly, the tax collectors and sinners. And this is what I'm going to do this morning. What group do we fall into? Who are these groups? How would we resonate with one of these groups? Or maybe we resonate with many of them, if not all of them. 
And again, what's happening in the beginning of Mark, chapters 1 through 8, is this. This question is always being asked. And I, whenever you're reading 1 through 8, whether in a community group, on your own, when we're going through sermons here at church, asking this question, who is Jesus? Who is he? And all these groups are trying to come to this understanding themselves. Who is this person? Jesus of Nazareth. Let's find out what these people think and see if we resonate with one of these groups. First of all, the crowd. Uh, Mark, through chapter 1 through 10, um, uses the word crowd 40 times. So it's something that we should pay attention to. And uh, he doesn't always use the idea of crowds in the most positive light. You know, in, in our day, you know, a band is... You know, someone's popular by being on TV, having a lot of Twitter followers, or uh, being uh, popular on, on movies, or whatever it might be. It was money, power, those kind of things bring popularity. And this day in Israel, honor is what brought popularity. And Jesus being able to teach with so much authority and so clearly and all these things, people were like, man... This guy has honor. We want to follow him. And that was a sign of him gathering lots of people and popularity. And on top of that, his healing ministry had power. But the thing is, the crowd is fickle, as we see. With John the Baptist, you know, he had all this crowd and they left him like that. So the crowd can come and they can go. How do we fall into this category, the crowd? Um, how many guys, the Kiss Cam, they still do that at Brewers games at all, the Kiss Cam or anything like that, or different games? How do you just dread being on the Kiss Cam or being on the big screen at a Brewers game or any kind of thing? That would scare me half to death, right? Maybe you fall into that category. You're the kind of person that says, I will go to the show, I will go to something, and I will observe, but you, you put me front and center. If you ask me to do something, like get on stage or anything like that, that is crazy. I'm the kind of person that likes to sit in the back and just observe. I like to watch. I like to see how things unfold. And maybe, just maybe, I might stand and do the seventh inning stretch. Okay, maybe, you know? But I'm a kind of person that likes to just watch. What would that kind of person think of the paralytic? Man, that's awesome. These friends would do something like that. That's cool. Man, I, I would never be dropped down like that. I would never dig through the roof. But it's fun to watch and see what might occur. I want to sum it up like this, and I want you to get this as we go through this. Proximity and enthusiasm for Jesus is not the same as faith. Proximity and enthusiasm for Jesus is not the same as faith. We'll get back to the crowd in a bit. Next, the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees that are mentioned a little bit later. Um, they are the people that run the show. Do you fall into these, the box that you're supposed to as uh, a person that teaches? They are the skeptics. Jesus, are you teaching the right thing? We're here to observe to make sure you're doing the right stuff. And if you are doing the right stuff, we definitely want to be on board because, you know, we are people that deserve to be on board because we do the right stuff. 
And really, they kind of sometimes command the crowds. They speak to them and say, oh, he's right, he's wrong, anything like that. And they want to make sure he's not going to be rocking the boat. Now, you have to understand why they're so upset about Jesus going and um, eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. Now, they probably picture Jesus, he is going to be the new king. Okay, we're looking for a king to rule over Israel. And eating with people is a sign of who is going to reign in his kingdom. Okay, you invite someone to dinner, you invite someone to your house or whatever, that is a sign of these are the people that are really in, are going to be, you know, the important players when the kingdom reigns. Now, imagine their disbelief when they think we're the kind of people that are going to be in when he becomes king, when instead he invites sinners and tax collectors to be the ones that are closest to him. That would make them pretty upset. I'll, I would use more choice language, but Ellie is sitting here in the front row. Okay. They were upset. How about you? Um, you know, our, we live in a skeptical age. We like to doubt uh, I think a liberal arts degree, all it taught me is how to basically deconstruct everything and everyone. Um, thank you, higher education. Um, you know, being an armchair critic is a lot of fun. I can sit back, I can watch, I can critique, I can do all those things, and I don't have to really get involved. Instead, I can just deconstruct what's happening. Maybe you're the person that screams at the TV. CNN, Fox News, whatever it might be. The critic. I'm going to deconstruct anything that's happening. Also, what might fall us in the scribe and Pharisee category is we're impenetrable. We have things in order. I've got my mortgage down. I've got the right job. I'm in the right place. I am impenetrable to any critiques about how I'm living life. I am a secure person. And if people want to know how to live life in the Fox Valley, look at me. I've got it. No one can see any blemish. So when things are called upon to get done, people will look to me first because I look good. For the scribe and the Pharisee, Jesus fits into their grid. That's what they want to find out. That's who Jesus is. Fit into our grid. And if you don't, we're going to be very upset. Nextly, the friends, okay? Um, they are people that are simply not going to listen to the message of Jesus. They are going to act on it. We have a, someone, a friend of ours, that is a paralytic, we see a guy that's able to heal people, we don't care what the obstacles, what's there, we are going to dig through this roof and we're going to drop it in front of Jesus. They are people that get things done. We not, might not know what Jesus is all about, but we know one thing, our friend is sick and we want him to get better. Are you that kind of person? Are you the risk taker kind of person? Are you the guy that when all the guys get together, you say, let's do something crazy, you know? Are you the, when the girls get together, say, oh, this single lady, there's a guy over there. We're going to get his number together, okay? You see a problem, 
We're going to go find a solution. I'm the get things done kind of person. We are doers. We are people that get things done. Do you fall into that friend category? Next, the paralytic. Now you understand, um, having a disease or being paralyzed or whatever it might be at that time, many times people saw that as a sign of sin in your life. This is a consequence of something that you have done. Now Jesus in other places in the Gospels um, says that correlation does not always match. Just because someone's sin does not make them sick or paralyzed or whatever it might be. He does not make that correction here. Now, I want to make it clear, I am not saying that because someone has sickness or someone has uh, an illness, it means they have sin in their lives. That is not always equal. And in fact, in our kind of modern world, the idea that some kind of spirituality could create sickness is pretty weird and crazy. Although I have seen changes over a period of time, the kind of the holistic approach that our mind, our relationships, our emotional state, our spiritual state can create a physical reality that's kind of become more in vogue lately. For example, the Washington Post um, recently uh, published an article about um, those that are left alone, if all other factors are equal, they're um, given food, they're given everything else equal, if they're left alone and don't have social interaction, they're 20% more likely to die earlier. So again, this is the research that's out there. So relationships, this holistic approach has effects. So again, sin might have an effect upon our physical state. What does that mean for us? Some of you might be thinking, I, I fit in that paralytic kind of idea. I have a horrible relationship right now that I'm in. I'm in crazy debt. I'm in a dead-end job. Man, it might be because the choices I made were poor. Who I decided to be with, what choices I made monetarily, whether I asserted myself in school or not. I'm just facing the consequences of what happened in my life and the decisions that I made. I'm sick. I'm in trouble. Right or wrong as that might be, we dwell on those things. Yeah, I'm the paralytic. I am crippled by something in my life. And we come to Jesus then as the paralytic says, fix these problems. Give me something better than what I have. Lastly, the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, at this time, tax collectors could have been multiple jobs. It could have been the people that made house calls and said, you um, need to give this kind of money. Probably what he's talking about is toll collectors because Capernaum was a big place for toll collection because along a road. So you travel from one place to another, you had to, to pay money, like Illinois, you know? That's why we hate Illinois. <laughs> but um, the thing is, these people 
were looked down upon because um, this was an example of Rome having control. Here they've set up this puppet government where Herod is king, and now Herod has put out these tax collectors, and these tax collectors have been given a quota. They have to get this kind of money to me, and you're good. But the thing is, they would be dishonest, and this thing is, we'll even collect more than the quota, and no one's going to check us on this. So that can be for our own living. Sometimes we'll even collect money and never ever give it to Herod. Uh, Shady people, okay? A symbol of Roman oppression, of traitors. You could imagine they were the social pariahs of their day. In an age where we kind of accept maybe any kind of lifestyle or any kind of person, is it hard to find social pariahs in our day? You know, I, I will make this equation, and you guys might think I might be jumping too far, but I really don't think so. I think the social pariahs of our day might be pedophiles or sexual predators. Those people are the pariahs of our age. They're tagged. We have places online where we can find where they live. We don't want them in church. We don't want them around, around our kids. They're the social pariahs of our day. If you think I'm going too far, I mean, you understand, back in that day, pedophilia wasn't a big thing in Roman culture. You know, it just changes over time. Tax collectors, well, we're not as angry as the IRS as we used to be, you know? You could all, all in whatever group you're in, you can always think of what is a social pariah. What is someone that I'm not going to hang out with them because they could corrupt us? Those are the people that we say, man, they are in trouble. They are in danger. Don't hang around them. They could bring trouble upon your life. Well, how is Jesus going to speak to these five groups? What is he going to do? And here is the pivot point. This is where it gets so good. Jesus is cool. I mean, he's... He always does something that you don't expect him to to happen, right? So here you go. You're you're teaching in maybe your own home or one of your major followers, Paul's home. And all of a sudden... Paul, why do I say Paul? Why am I saying Paul? Peter's home. And um, all of a sudden, there's this digging at the top of the roof. You know, stuff is falling down. And this guy is lowered in front of you. You know? You'd expect maybe some frustration. Uh, I'm teaching here. What's going on? You know? But no, he acknowledges their faith. And he says, how amazing their faith. But then he does something even more unexpected in what he says initially. Your sins are forgiven. Imagine you are the crowd. First of all, you're thinking, your reaction should be, what the heck is going on? Doesn't do that. And then on top of that, okay, there's a person that's sick. He doesn't have a problem with going through. He's going to heal them. No. No show. Just words. Forgiven. What? You're the friends. You've done all this work. They've lowered down. Man, crazy. And do something. Forgiven. What? But imagine being the paralytic. I mean, this guy has got to be just, you're sitting there, you're ready for the healing. This is what Jesus does. And he says, you are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. What what is that good for? And of course, who brings out what they really think? 
the scribes and the Pharisees, they say, who can forgive sins? Only God can. You blaspheme. How can you say such a thing? And this is where Jesus gets everyone to think. The crowd, the friends, the paralytic, the scribes and Pharisees, and the question that he asked them. When he asks questions, you get people to think, right? So this is the question he asks, and I'll posit the same question to you. What do you think is easier? Is it easier to tell this man, get up and walk, or to forgive his sins? What is easier to do? And he's getting people to think, what is easier? You're the crowd, okay? What is easier? Is it easier for him to forgive sins or easier for him to tell this man to get up and walk? And if you're the crowd, you'd say, you know, really, it's, on first blush, it's kind of harder to tell him to get up and walk because we can see that. We can't see the forgiveness of sins. And we want to see him get up and walk. That's what we really want to see. But if you think further, you say, but wait a second, forgiveness of sins is healing just more than just the paralysis. It's healing everything that is in me. And if you're the crowd, what is getting you to think even more is this. If he says he has the power to forgive sins, he is no longer just talking to the paralytic. He might be talking to me. If he has the power to forgive sins, he might not just be talking to this paralytic. He might be talking to me. Oh, but not me. I'm the crowd. I like to watch. Don't lower me. Don't make me ask to do anything crazy. Don't ask me to be upfront. Don't ask me to be analyzed. Don't ask me to be probed. Don't ask me to do surgery upon my heart. But Jesus says, no. I can do surgery not just on this man, but on all of you. Just watching is not going to work. You're the friends. You see a problem, you get a solution. That's what you do, right? And now the solution isn't happening right away because you says forgiveness of sins and you wanted something different. You wanted him to get up and walk. It happens later, but Jesus is getting you to think right now. I just want us to get think ourselves. I know some of us here are doers. We want to get things done. And when we see someone in our family or someone of our friends that have problems in life, we are going to find solutions for them. They need to be in this program. They need to go through Dave Ramsey's um, budget issue program, right? They need to go uh, to an AA group. They need to be in this program or this. I'm going to find solutions so that they will be healed outwards. Jesus says to these friends, I'm going to do just more than that. I'm going to heal what's inside. I'm going to spiritually heal this person. I encourage you, those that want to see friends and family and people that you know are on the outside that are hurting, that you want to see solutions. That is not just a program, which those are good. But the real healing that has to happen has to come from the inside. It has to be Jesus healing their sins 
or they're just going to trade one addiction for another. Moving on to the paralytic, the most perplexed. Jesus, I just want to get up and walk, and now you're telling me my sins are forgiven. You know, you might be in a, <laughs> a horrible job, whatever it might be, and whatever you might be dealing with, and, and you see Jesus the one that's going to be my sugar daddy, okay? He's the one that's going to solve the problem that I'm going through. And it looks a little bit like this. Okay, I have money problems. I'm going to ask Jesus, give me money. I have got job problems. I'm going to say, Jesus, get me the right job. I have relationship problems. God, put me in the right relationship. And I think what Jesus is saying here is I want to go down to the root. I'm not just going to fix what's on the outside, though he does here. But I want to first fix what's on the inside. That maybe behind the debt or what you're dealing with is a heart problem, which is horrible spending habits. Because you believe that the only way I can find security is if I spend money. And Jesus says, I want to be your security. Or a certain job title. I want this title at work. And maybe Jesus is wanting to go deeper and say, you know what? Your value is not found in a title. It is found by identifying with me. I want to get out of this relationship because if once I get in the right relationship, then I will finally, it will be fine. Once I'm married, then everything will work out great. And Jesus is saying, no. If you want to find a real relationship, one that will last, one that will give you true security, it's not in a man. It's not in some woman. It's in me. Jesus wants to go deeper. The Pharisees. Jesus showing this, I'm not, and this is really fitting. If this, please memorize this verse. It's so good. The last verse in this passage. Here, you can look on it together with me. If, in this verse, I, so you know, um, through the early church, it was, um, it was quoted many, many times. Um, in history, it's used over and over again. So you can tell the early church really clung to this passage. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, righteousness is a loaded word, I know that. And when we hear the word righteousness, we think it's loaded. I just want us to think of righteousness in this way, okay? Righteousness is what we think will make our life right, okay? What will make our life right or justifiable or good, okay? This is what will make my life right. If anyone is going to judge me, I want them to judge me on these things. This is what is righteousness, and many of us have them, and I think the scribes and Pharisees have them. And these are things that sometimes I hear from people. I want to be a person that's full of integrity. That is a righteous person. I want to people that person that's. I want to be a person that's respected. I want to be, be a person that people say he lived or she lived a good life. They're a good person. They do good things. This is the problem with that. We substitute our righteousness for Christ's righteousness. And what we do when we do that is this. 
Please hear this. What happens is, my identity and self-worth are, not based, are, ba- are based on how hard I work or how moral I am. And in regard, I look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to the other. Because this is what righteousness is. Not what Christ has done, but what I have done. And therefore, I can look down on others that don't live that way. Because my righteousness is based on me. But you know what? Over time, your righteousness will crack. It will, there will be times that your integrity is questioned. That your being a good person is really in question. And what happens then with the self-righteous person is this. We fake it. We got to fake it when that happens. I got to keep up appearances, right? If someone sees that my righteousness is based on what I do, I have got to look good. Or we hide it. I'm just going to conceal the bad stuff. Because if, pe- if I feel like people knew me, they wouldn't truly love me. The last group. The group that Jesus sees as truly identifying him in the right way. And this is just the craziness of the gospel. The scandalous message of the gospel. That the group he says is identifying with him the best way are these sinners and tax collectors. You know what it is about the sinners and tax collectors? They know. They know what people think about them. They know that they are pariahs and they have problems and they have issues. But in the midst of that, this figure that is amazing and cool comes and hangs out with them and loves them. Please hear this. Jesus loves and accepts tax collectors and sinners as they are. They don't repent first and then he comes to the house. He comes to the house when they are sinners and tax collectors. If they forsake evil and amend their lives, it is not in order to gain Jesus' favor, but because Jesus has loved them as sinners. The thing is, sinners are more aware of their need for the transforming nature of God. The righteous say this, Give me that scalpel. I can do surgery on myself. I can make myself look good. Whatever it might be, I'll just cut it off. The sinner says this, Jesus, I cannot do this. I need you. Take this. Change me. Transform me. You are the one that can transform my life. That is why Jesus identifies with sinners because they know they cannot do it on their own. Aaron and I have had some major suffering in the past month. And our uncle has allowed us to share this story, and he encouraged me to share this story with you. So I will. This is a heavy story. If your kids ask about it afterwards, I encourage them. You can talk to them about this. I feel safe sharing this in front of Ellie. Um, Aaron and I's cousin, John Reed, three weeks ago, he, um, he had not been talking to the family for years. 
struggled with alcoholism and drug abuse, was living in California, was um, abusing women. He just, issues, problems. He uh, went to the Beverly Hills Hotel on the 10th floor and drank and then jumped out the window. He landed on a luggage cart. And this luggage cart um, caught his fall. So he was, he's still living. Hardly any damage only to his legs. He is um, currently in a coma, but they are hopeful that he is going to come out of it because they don't see a lot of brain damage that's there. And our uncle, of course, is there and aunt's there. Just a troubled young man. Um, a couple weeks before the accident, he uh, Facebooked me and he said, Dan, what do you think the state of East Coast and West Coast rap is? Right? This is the kind of questions I get from him. I didn't respond to him back then. But I responded to him now. And, and he, uh, Uncle John has been reading things to him. And so I wrote this email and I asked him to read this to him. And uh, I'm going to read it to you now. Johnny, it's your cousin Daniel. I wanted to answer your question on the current state of East Coast and West Coast rap. Johnny, I have to be honest. With Tupac gone, West Coast rap doesn't, hasn't been the same. Plus, with Biggie out of the picture, the feud hasn't been what it's like in the 90s. So to answer your question, Diddy is currently the rap king and East Coast rap reigns supreme. <laughs> if you knew Johnny, you would know this joke, you know? And then I went on and said this. Johnny, we miss you. Aaron and I talked about how fun it was going to your tennis tournament in Norfolk many years back, eating crab legs, watching training day together, and watching you in your element. Johnny, you are missed more than you could ever realize, and we long to see you. Johnny, as I think about what you're going through, I am reminded, this is before I was even studying this passage, of the story from Mark 2, 1 through 12. And I asked Uncle John to read to him then. And after he had done reading, I asked this prayer to be prayed for Johnny. This is my prayer to the Lord for you, Johnny. Most merciful Father, healer, Savior, and Redeemer, like the men who lowered their friend to Jesus for healing, we bring Johnny to you, pleading for your healing. Heal him, Lord, both in body and in his spirit. Remind him of your unfailing love. Speak your words to him. You are forgiven. Get up, take your mat, and walk. And let his friends, his family, and all of us rejoice and say this. We have never seen anything like this as he gets up from that hospital bed and walks. But more than that, as I talked about this with Uncle John, we know we have a God that can penetrate so deep into the recesses of his mind to say to Johnny, Johnny, stop running. You can be forgiven because there is a God that can go to the recesses of your soul and forgive you. That is the good news. Jesus isn't a rock star that we like to listen to. He's cool. We come to church and man, this is what we do on Sunday morning. No, he is a surgeon and he's saying to you, I want to do surgery on you. 
I want to go to the deep recesses of your soul and let you know you will never find satisfaction. You will never find healing. You will never find fullness unless you are in relationship with me. That is the good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do lift up Johnny to you. You are a God that heals. I pray, Lord, that you would heal him, that he would come out of that coma. But more than that, that's not going to solve him. But ultimately, you will be able to solve him through your forgiveness. I pray that you would do that. I pray Johnny would just be aware that he needs your righteousness. God, I pray for this congregation. I pray for those that might be dealing with many different things and might find themselves in this story. God, speak to them. And I pray that we would know who Jesus is. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, let's continue in worship this morning. Let's stand together. And printed in your bulletin is the last song. It's so sweet to trust in Jesus. So let us sing this together.